1: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I rappelled off the side of this cliff at about 80 feet down. I can see where the vehicle had hit. I continued on down following the debris. At about 400 feet down, he was laying seven feet in front of the vehicle. His left arm was severed at the elbow, and he had bled out.
0: Hi there. I'm Yardley.
1: I'm Dan.
2: And I'm Dave.
0: And this is Smalltown Town Dicks.
2: Dave and I are identical twins and we're retired detectives from Small Town, USA. Together, we've investigated thousands of cases, from petty theft to sex crimes, from child abuse to murder. Every case in our podcast is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they broke the case. Names, places, and certain details, including relationships, have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases— We ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan.
2: Hello, everyone.
0: Hello, you. And we have Detective Dave.
2: Hello, team.
0: Hello, sir. And small-town fam. We are so pleased to welcome to the podcast retired Detective Lins. Hello. Lins, I remember when you told us about this case, our jaws were just to the ground, so I'm just going to hand it off to you.
1: All right, well, this case came to our attention on June the 14th, 1979. I was sitting in my office in Monterey, California, when we were alerted by the dispatch system that the United States Forest Service Rangers in the Big Sur, California area had reported that they were going to investigate a possible gunshot victim, a female, located on the Mill Creek Trail, which is 60 miles south of Monterey. So the sheriff's unit was dispatched to that location, And when they arrived, the forest rangers directed them to a woman by the name of Molly. She was a visitor to the area with her boyfriend, and she was walking along the Mill Creek Trail and came across a female whose name was Gertie. Gertie thinks she's been shot, and all she has on is a pair of shorts. When they come across Gertie, she can't stand upright. She's got this hole in her arm that's covered in maggots. This wound in her left arm appears to be a gunshot. And while Gertie could speak English, she was more comfortable speaking in German. Molly happened to be fluent in German. And what she told Molly was pretty shocking. So Gertie was with her friend Herman on a camping trip. They started this journey on the 6th of June. They flew from Germany to Arizona, where they rented a car, drove from Arizona to the Los Angeles area, and then up the coast to the Big Sur area. I should mention at this point, uh, Gertie was uh, 41 years old at this time. Herman was 28 at the time. And he was a family friend who had been to America before, and he was going to take Gertie and her husband, but uh, her husband couldn't make the trip.
0: Just give us... For anybody who's unfamiliar with Big Sur, give us a little bit of the lay of the land of that area.
1: Sure. The Big Sur is an interesting place. You have the Pacific Ocean on your right as you're headed south and on your left as you're going north up the coast. Highway 1 is a uh, two-lane highway that twists and turns for 60 or 70 miles down the county line. And... It includes some spectacular cliffs where drops can be four, five hundred, six hundred feet straight down on the ocean side. On the inland side, you see mountains and streams coming down from these mountains. Beautiful scenery, either way you look. So with Gertie and Herman, when they got into the Big Sur area on June the 11th, they couldn't find any place to camp. So they took this road coming off of Highway 1 going east, away from the Pacific Ocean. And they went up a hill about 5.5 miles where they pulled over for the evening, several thousand feet up as the sun was setting, with a beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean down below. They got out their sleeping bags and uh, fell asleep on this pullout off of this road. And uh, they were awakened sometime in the middle of the night by another vehicle coming up And Gertie explains that these two guys came to their spot where they were camped. And they said they were looking for their lost dog and asked if Gertie and Herman had seen the dog. They're drinking whiskey out of a big bottle. And when these guys first approached, Gertie says, they didn't notice her at first. And she hunkered down more in her sleeping bag, hoping that they would not see that she was a woman. She started feeling right then that this is not going to end up well. Herman is trying to explain they haven't seen the lost dog, and one of them asks Herman for money. They didn't have any American cash on them. They had these traveler's checks, and if they did have any cash, it would have been small amounts, like four or five bucks. Herman pulled out his traveler's checks. One of the guys said, I don't want these, and actually threw them over the cliffside. And he pulls out this pistol, hits Perman over the head, knocks him out, puts him in the back of this 1979 Plymouth Arrow, lifts up the hatchback, stuffs him inside, and takes his shoelaces off his shoes and hog ties him. In other words, he's laid face down in the back of this car on his stomach with his arms and his legs tied together. One of the guys says to Gertie, well, I'll tell you what, you show us your breasts and uh, we'll let you go. She said, okay, I'll do that. Of course, that didn't work. next thing they do is they stripped her of all her clothing, and then both of them forced her to orally copulate them. Then they took her down on the ground, and they raped her. And then they decided that the next thing to do was they were going to tie her up. She says, well, can I please put on some clothing? And they say, okay, you can put your shorts back on. And... Then they put her in the front seat, the front passenger seat of the Plymouth Arrow. And so Gertie's in the front seat of the car now, only dressed in a pair of shorts with her hands tied. Herman is in the back, unconscious, hogtied. And then the two suspects, using their car, push Gertie and Herman's car over this cliff. And it plummets down the cliff, and on the way down, it strews all kinds of luggage. And Gertie is thrown out of the car. She's ejected and she has no idea where it landed. It's dark, and for some reason, she can't stand upright. She starts crawling on her butt, and with her hands folded over her chest, crawling along, calling for help for four days.
2: I'm struck by being out in this very, very rural, remote area, and two people happen upon where you're camping. And I'm sure that Herman and Gertie's, their senses were going wild. Like, this is not good. It's that uneasy feeling, like something bad's about to happen and I just don't know what it is. And then for them to do what they did, throw them both in a car and Gertie to be conscious. Was she conscious when she went over the side? Yes, she was. You just picture... That car bounding down this cliffside and these two guys high-fiving
1: each other at the top of the hill. It's so heartless. It is. So this thing happened on the 11th and for the next four days, Gertie is crawling. It's now the 14th of June and this is when Molly comes across Gertie. The call goes out that we now have a possible murder and we have a sexual assault case So my partners and I start driving down to the scene. A helicopter is called to come in and pull Gertie out of the area. And our two deputies who were down in the Big Sur area finally arrive and they actually see her. She's eventually airlifted out of there to the hospital. And I arrive on the scene about an hour later.
2: So when deputies first make contact with Molly and Gertie, on the trail. Gertie's able to pinpoint where this campsite is.
1: Yeah, she said it was about five miles up the road. So we start driving up to that point and uh, it's still daylight. So we find this area where there's a big turnout and we can see there's a barbed wire fencing along this turnout. And there's a big section of barbed wire missing. So we look over the side and we can see about 60 feet down a big gouge In the ground, and you can see debris going all the way down to this copse of trees. Now, I was also a trained mountaineer, trained at Yosemite and rappelling. So I rappelled off the side of this cliff.
2: What did you anchor to, the vehicle or a tree Or
1: We actually had a rescue truck there. Okay. And uh, so that's what I'm anchored to. (laughs) Smart move. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Linz, was this cliff, did it drop down to uh, solid ground?
1: Yeah, it uh, drops down to this trail I was talking about earlier, the Mill Creek Trail. And that's where Gertie found the trail and started working her way down the trail until she was found by Molly. So I start working my way down this cliff. Now it's about 45, 50-degree angle. It's not like 90 degrees, but it's still steep. And uh, on the way down the cliffside, at about 80 feet down, I can see where the vehicle had hit and rolled. I continued on down following the debris. I found her purse at about 200 feet down. And then I found Herman's ID at about 350 feet down. And around the 400-foot mark, I found the vehicle upside down in a copse of trees. Herman was laying seven feet in front of the vehicle face down. He was wearing blue coveralls and a white long john type shirt. His left arm was tucked under, and his right arm was in a forward position. Uh, I took a close look at him, and he was covered in maggots. His left arm was severed at the elbow, and I assumed at the time that that was his cause of death. He had bled out. So... Since I was a supposed trained investigator, I have my 35-millimeter film camera with me. And so I'm taking pictures of all this stuff. And when I get to the end of the roll, I say, well, i got to reload. But I say, I don't have any more film. I'm going to need some more. So I go back up to the top, open the camera up, and there's no film in it. <gasps>
2: <laughs> oh.
1: So I've got to repeat this whole process. That's the things that can go wrong in an investigation. (laughs) I've been there. Had we had cell phones and things like that, that wouldn't have been a problem.
2: When you get back up to the top of the hill and you find out that you had no film in the camera, what does your partner say to you?
1: You can imagine what he said. (laughs) You dumb. (laughs) You idiot. (laughs) So anyway, I have to repeat this whole process. And then we bring Herman's body back up. And uh, we've got a car, which is a piece of evidence, about 350, 400 feet down this cliffside. We have to get the car back up. But now it's getting dark. So what happens is we have to go back the next day to get the the car up with a big tow truck. In the meantime, we've got to go interview Gertie. So that evening she's interviewed, but she's in a lot of pain and not too coherent. We go back the next day, and my partner and I using a translator, interview her again, and she gives us basically the same story.
0: Is Gertie still in the hospital?
1: Yeah, she's in the hospital, and we determined at that time that's not a gunshot wound, it's just a hole she got in her arm, it's probably when she was ejected from the vehicle or hitting branches or something on the way down.
0: Is there a reason why she wasn't able to walk, why she sort of scooted along on her bum for a while?
1: There was nothing wrong with her legs, but... She was in a lot of pain with that arm and uh, perhaps a muscle strain or something of that nature caused her to feel like she couldn't stand up right.
0: I'm also sure Gertie was in terrible shock.
1: Yeah, she was.
2: Did she give you any indication of what those four days were like for her? Was she able to find water? Did she have anything to eat? Or was it just
1: she was in survival mode? She had absolutely nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no water. Down at the bottom, there is a creek, but she didn't quite get that far. She was getting close, but she'd lost a lot of blood from that hole in her arm, and she was also extremely dehydrated. She was probably passing out. She working her way down. When I saw her, she was just in terrible, terrible shape. But she describes the two suspects with a uh, little more detail at this time. So she gives us a pretty good description, and we ask her if she would be able to... Uh, sit for a, uh, a police artist to come and draw a picture. He comes down and sits with her and draws these uh, two beautiful sketches that she says these look very much like the guys. In the meantime, we gather up pictures of all the usual suspects and uh, show her photo lineup after photo lineup after photo lineup, and she can't identify any of them. So as the investigation continues, Gertie is flown back to Germany. We continue to send photo lineups to her, but she cannot identify anybody. We put those composite sketches in the newspaper, but they yield nothing. And what happens next is the case just goes cold. Five years goes by. So one day, it's five years later, it's now June of 1984. I'm sitting in my office with my partner, and we're not even talking about this case, and we get this phone call in from this man called Tim. So he had been a prisoner the night before in the jail in the Monterey Courthouse, and Tim does something that's never been done before. He escapes out of the jail. Really? We didn't know it at the time. He's noticed missing later, but we didn't know how he got out. So... When he calls up and says, I want to turn myself in, we pick him up and he says, well, the way I got out of there was I found this corner in this jail cell I was in up in the ceiling and I pushed on it and it it raised a little bit. Nobody else was in the cell with him. He says, I think I'll just push up on this. And he was able to tear a piece loose, got up into the ceiling and crawled over into the evidence room, which is loaded with all kinds of weapons, drugs. But what he does... He goes to the door of the evidence room, which goes to the main hallway of the entrance to the sheriff's office. There's nobody there. So Tim walks right out the door.
0: Holy shit.
1: (laughs) So needless to say, uh, that caused some changes in our jail. (laughs) So Tim goes... Would it help if I gave you some information about an old homicide case? And I said, sure. What case are you talking about? He says, well, do you remember the one about the German couple about five years ago? The guy was murdered and uh, the woman was raped. I said, yeah. I know the people who did it. I said, well, what are their names? And he said, I'm not going to tell you that until you can give me some guarantees. So what we do is we talk with the district attorney about it. And he says, well, find out what this guy's got and maybe we can give him a deal. Excuse his jailbreak and whatever petty theft he had caused, to put him in jail. And Tim says, a girlfriend of one of the suspects took me to the Monterey Library and said, I want to show you uh, pictures in the archives here. And so she pulls out the paper, and it's the one where our composite drawings are. And she says, this is my boyfriend, George, and the other guy is Ralph. And he says, wow, now that you say that, I, I do recognize him. Tim goes and talks to these guys, and they say, yeah, yeah, we did it, but we didn't think anybody would ever find out about it. We took our car, the Chevy Vega, and we had somebody just tow it away because we were afraid somebody would identify it. So there we have our possible vehicle, and we have names. So the next step is we've got to find Gertie. This took quite some time. We had to use Interpol so I ended up calling Washington, D.C. and uh, talked to the on-duty Interpol agent. I said, I need help finding this woman in Germany right away. So he says, okay, we'll contact the German police and find her for you. And they did. Well, the next thing, which would have made more sense, would have been to fly me to Germany. <laughs> but the county didn't want to incur that expense. So instead, I put together two photo lineups with six people in each one, one with Ralph yeah, they were with George. And they were sent to Munich Police Department where a German detective, uh, his name is Werner. Detective Werner takes the photo lineups to Gertie and follows the instructions I gave him as to how to show them to her.
0: Do they do photo lineups differently in Europe that you needed to instruct him in that way, or were you just sort of catching him up on the details of the case?
1: I really don't know if they do their photo lineups differently than we do. I would assume they do the same. But the reason I gave him the instructions was so that he would do it exactly as I would do it.
2: One of the lines I've heard from detectives, and I've seen it on true crime actual documentaries, is when a detective hands over a lineup and says, do you recognize anyone in this photo lineup? Well, that's not speaking specifically to the case you're investigating. Maybe they saw this person who works at a gas station that they frequent. So if they say, yeah, I do recognize that person, that's not a good idea.
1: Not at all. I agree. And so I told him what I need you to say to Gertie is that the person who did this to you may or may not be in this lineup. Uh, do not assume that he is in this lineup because we're showing you these pictures. But Gertie breaks into tears and identifies both of these guys positively.
2: Hey, folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
0: Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me lumi is baking soda free paraben free and ph balanced so it's safe for your pits and your bits which means you can use it below the belt they have a lovely variety of fresh bright scents like clean tangerine my favorite lavender sage or toasted coconut and the secret to lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid that's how it stops odor before it starts so small town fam, Lumi starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice like mini body wash or deodorant wipes and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off All Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is SMALLTOWN. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code SMALLTOWN for 15% off your first purchase at LumiDeodorant.com. That's code SMALLTOWN at L-U-M-E Deodorant.com. Do it. of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it.
2: So once you've got a positive ID of George and Ralph from Gertie, can you walk us through what the next steps were for you as an investigator back in the States?
1: Yeah. So Gertie had told us during the assault that one of the guys had said, I've got to get home. I've got a baby. What I was able to determine by going through old police reports is Ralph had been a minor criminal during these five years that passed. And I discovered a report where it said he had a girlfriend and that she'd had a child in 1979 who was about seven or eight months old. So I went to her house, contacted her, and she said, yeah, Ralph is my son's father. And he told me that he and George committed these crimes. Why didn't you come forward? Well, I didn't want to uh, ruin the relationship I have with him. So... That helped make the case stronger because now we have a, another witness of the two guys saying, I did it. And that's when the DA's office authorized the arrest warrants. And we arrested them both on the same day in 1984.
2: Were you present when the handcuffs went on? Yes. I'm wondering what their reaction was when there's detectives knocking on their door.
1: They uh, were absolutely amazed. Uh, that, amazed, as a good, they were shocked. And, of course, said they didn't do it.
0: Were they together when you arrested them? Were they in the same dwelling?
1: They were in two different locations. But the uh, police agencies that helped us were right there to help us, and we got them.
0: Did you say how Tim knew George and Ralph?
1: They were uh, acquaintances. There was a group of uh, people who uh, just kind of hung around together. You know, the usual suspects. And Timmy was just a thief type crook he wasn't into heavy type things these guys all like to hang around together and drink and kind of brag about what they'd done and it's kind of a code amongst a lot of these people not to tell anybody else unless you need to use it to get yourself out of trouble you know jailhouse informants as we all know are not always the most reliable a lot of them make up stuff so that's why it was really important that once he gave us his information that we start tracking down these people to see if they would corroborate what was said. For example, George's girlfriend refused to say anything to me about taking Tim into the library to show him the old newspaper with the composite in it. She wouldn't answer any of those questions. It's kind of a code of honor amongst thieves, I guess, that they don't tell on each other, unless, of course, it's to their advantage.
2: Don't want to be labeled a snitch. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Had George and Ralph... What was their usual kind of crime? Was it petty theft, or were they into more violent crimes such as the ones that committed against Gertie and Herman?
1: Just petty theft.
0: It escalated so brutally.
1: It just doesn't make any sense that uh, these guys who are, have no record of doing anything like this, why it happened that way. It's, I can see them maybe robbing them, but why it escalated like that, I don't know. They'd been drinking, and I guess decided to have a little fun, and it got out of hand. I think once they forced Gertie to orally copulate them, they figured that now it's gone too far. And uh, we've got to get rid of them, because she'll be able to identify us. And so will Herman. And I can guarantee you that had she not survived, I don't think we would have ever found them unless somebody happened to get out of that pullout and see the gouges in the earth going down to that copse of trees and some of the debris, weeks, months, years would have passed probably. And then somebody probably would have come across a wreck with the skeletons in it and Gertie further down the trail.
2: How fortuitous for Gertie to, in this time of need and terror that she's been through this horrible experience for the last four days, how terrifying those nights would have been when you have wildlife around that you're not aware of that can kill you, and she runs into someone who speaks her native language on this trail.
1: Unbelievable how that happened. And speaking of wild animals there, one of the reasons that Ralph and George might have been in that area was that the area is known for feral pigs. That's something else that could have frightened her and actually hurt her.
0: Yeah, they're terrible.
1: Yeah. So George and Ralph could have been out there hunting for pigs. It's an unusual place for them to have been. It's 60 miles south of where their homes are. So, you know, what were they really doing there? Were they hunting pigs? Were they looking for somebody like Gertie and Herman? Who knows? But why were they that far away? There's no explanation that crime
2: scene may have contributed to some of their behavior, where you're so remote that no one's around, no one's going to see anything, and you've got a cliff nearby, and
1: maybe you can get away with this. Yeah, and they actually did for five years. Yeah. They probably thought they were home free, so the looks on their faces when we clapped the handcuffs on were worth the price.
0: Lynz, do you think, in addition to the alcohol that George and Ralph were drinking and the remote location that Gertie and Herman were in, do you think the fact that Herman and Gertie were obviously foreign and speaking with heavy German accents contributed to the escalation of this crime?
1: Yeah, I'm sure that with Gertie and Herman being German, that that gave incentive to George and Ralph to commit the crimes they did. I think that might be a reason which encouraged them to... uh, go ahead and do this because these people don't speak English very well, although Gertie could speak English better than I can speak German, but I'm positive that that was probably enough to give them the incentive to go ahead and do what they did. And so Gertie's feelings turned out to be correct. It did not turn out well, and she's lucky she survived.
0: Did
2: uh, either of these guys, once they were locked away, did they ever come off
1: their story that they didn't do it? Uh, Not to my knowledge. I think they're sticking to it. And after preliminary hearing, which took about three months to go through, they were held to answer, and they separated with two different attorneys. We had a trial for George, and Ralph had a court trial in front of a judge.
2: Did Gertie have to come back to the States for the trial?
1: Yes, she did. She had to come back twice. She had to come back for the preliminary hearing and testify through a translator. And then she had to come back for George's trial and testify with a translator. The uh, jury found George guilty of murder, sexual assault, rape, oral copulation. The judge did the same thing a month later to Ralph Uh, Ralph was sentenced to 26 years to life, and George was sentenced to life without parole. Ralph died several years later in prison due to AIDS, and it was really hard. We had to get through and notify Gertie about that. George is still in prison.
0: Did Ralph have AIDS when he assaulted Gertie? Was that why that conversation was difficult?
1: because we didn't know that he had AIDS before that, and I don't think it was ever proven that he had AIDS before that, but because he died of AIDS, we felt that we had to let her know, and uh, we did, and uh, she did not have AIDS, so that's a positive aspect of it.
0: And why were the sentences different for Ralph and George when it seemed like they were both equally culpable? They both pushed the car off the cliff.
1: Well, that's a really good question. The judge who sentenced Ralph was a more lenient judge, and the one who sentenced George was not as lenient, and that's the only reason there was a difference in the two cases. This is
2: a frustration that you have different judges who are applying the law in different ways and applying their sentences in different ways. In our state, we have mandatory minimums. You're right. If you check the boxes on this crime, this is the least amount of days you're going to spend in prison. When you give judges that kind of discretion, that's how we get sentences like the Stanford Brock Turner case, where Brock Turner gets blessed with this very lenient judge who says, you know what, I don't want to ruin this kid's life. Well, he's witnessed raping a girl who's unconscious, and he gets six months. That is how you lose the trust of the people. You have one judge who's like, oh, these guys are monsters. I'm hammering them. You have another judge who's like, well, you know, I'm going to take it easy on you. It's it's absurd. Yeah. Were there any discussions with the DA when this case starts coming together for you guys of trying both of them at the same time?
1: Uh, yeah, that was the, the original plan. However, um, the defense looked at it differently and I think if we'd done them both at the same time in front of that first judge, the judge would have come down just as hard on Ralph. The interesting part was just uh, being able to see Gertie after all those years. And uh, she was able to actually fly to the United States with her sister as a companion to to give her support. So my wife and I actually, uh, during the trial, actually had them over for dinner one night, and it was just nice getting them to, to relax. So We were having dinner with Gertie and her sister and Detective Werner, the Munich detective, at the hotel where Gertie and her sister were staying. And into the dining room comes uh, Jimmy Doolittle, the World War II hero that flew the B-25s over Japan right after Pearl Harbor. So it was really interesting for them to see an actual American hero. That has nothing to do with the case, but it was just interesting.
0: Did Gertie stay married? I'm curious that she traveled to the U.S. with her sister instead of her husband.
1: Yeah, her husband stayed behind, although I did get to meet him because he came to pick her up to fly her back to Germany.
0: After the original incident?
1: Yeah, he was there within days after the incident and uh, took her back to Germany where she had quite a rehabilitation, and she went through some, uh, some mental health issues as well. Of course, the defense jumped on that right away. That didn't work for them, but they figured that they would somehow be able to attack her testimony because she was suffering a post-traumatic stress disorder, which anybody would suffer.
0: That's ridiculous. Of course, Gertie was suffering after this crime.
1: They're going to try to make the victims the suspects. That's how the defense works in a lot of cases. You know, start attacking them. They don't mean anything personal by it, but their job is to get their clients off. And so it was a great case because so many years had passed and we didn't think we were ever going to get to the bottom of it. And uh, then we did.
0: Well, Linz, thank you for bringing that to us today. It is odd to thank somebody for something so dreadful. But I do think that people want to know that even when you have no cell phones and DNA technology like we have today that you can still solve a crime like that just from hard work and a little bit of luck. So thank you.
2: Thank you, sir. Appreciate
1: it. You're welcome.
0: Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan, with additional editing assistance from Jackie Fulton. And our books are Cooked and Cats Wrangled by Ben Cornwell.
2: If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com.
0: Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about SpeechDocs Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com.
2: And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast.
0: That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country
2: in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, Small Town Fam.
0: Nobody's better than you.